Hi, this is Chris Foreman from Madness, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness Podcast. <laughs> Hi there, folks out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire's combo. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Well, hello, Madness fans. Welcome to another episode of the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. Today, we're going to continue our series of episodes about Madness adjacent bands. Is that correct, Polly? Yeah, I I guess we never really termed. uh, uh, We're trying to be Madness centric. But uh, not just go over all the stuff that everybody knows. Well, especially since now we're going on the third year that we're doing this. So there's only so much that is specific madness content that we have. So we're going to talk about a band called The Voice of the Beehive, of which Betters and Woody were both founding members. But before we do, Polly, I have something for the communicator. All right, then let's hear it. So the big news is the band has announced there's going to be a vinyl re-release of the Liberty of Norton Vulgate on 180 gram vinyl. This is a two album set gatefold and it's notable because it's going to include a number of bonus tracks that have never been included on vinyl before, such as let's go hunchback of Toriano and fish and chips. So that's pretty exciting for you vinyl collectors out there. Uh, yeah, and now uh, rereading it, just prior to taping, I told Lori I would probably pass on this one as I paid up for the you know the original box set of Norton Fullgate, but it's kind of like one of those things. If I read about it, I might just get hooked. And in, in looking at it now, yeah, so Fish and Chips that you mentioned, One Fine Day also, The Kiss... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there. I suppose I'm just going to have to buy it. Now, it also includes some new liner notes containing interviews with Suggs, Lee Thompson, Chrissy Boy Foreman, Daniel Woodgate, and Mike Barson, as well as an exclusive poem by Carl Smith. Now, that has me a little bit intrigued. So that's expected on February 24th of 2023. Oh, yeah. What time is it? Showtime. So, Holly, the voice of the beehive. Are you familiar with them? Yes, definitely familiar. How could you not be at this point? In the very least, if you're bored and looking up madness related stuff, you're going to know at some point. 
that Betters and Woody were uh, members of this band. And as such, how can you say, well, I'm not going to look any further? Oh, of course, you're going to look it up. You're going to listen to it, and you're going to try to find out a little bit about it. As I have, and as I know you know a great deal more about them than I do. Well, I didn't until this last week. I've really been immersing myself in all things Voice of the Beehive. I did buy the new re-release, the 35th anniversary re-release of their album, Let It Be, that has a lot of uh, B-sides and rarities on it. So that's pretty cool. In listening to it immersively, as I've been doing, I understand now why so many people get the Voice of the Beehive confused with Book of Love. Because there are some similarities in the way the bands sound. It's a very different sound than Madness. It's certainly not ska by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm a little bit excited that we're actually taking things in a little bit of a different direction today. Yeah, we should get right to it. Cool. Well, the voice of the Beehive story actually begins in the 1950s with a Los Angeles quartet called the Four Preps. They had several hits. But their biggest one was 26 Miles, Santa Catalina, in 1958. Let's give a little listen here. Twenty-six miles across the sea Santa Catalina is awaiting for me Santa Catalina, the island of romance Romance, romance, romance Water all around it, everywhere Tropical trees and the salty air But for me, the thing that's awaiting there Romance It seems so distant, 26 miles away Resting in the water so so that was a big hit for the Four Preps in the late 50s. And the lead singer of the Four Preps was a gentleman named Bruce Belland. And Bruce had two daughters named Tracy and Melissa. Tracy Brin was born on May 17th, 1962. And her sister, Melissa Brooke Belland, was born February 17th, 1966. So they're about four years apart. Now, growing up in Santa Barbara, Tracy was into dance and Melissa was more into acting. As a matter of fact, the girls were child actresses and appeared in a handful of TV commercials when they were children. Now, Tracy was really into the British bands of like the late 70s, early 80s, Adam Ant, Bow Wow Wow, and The Pretenders. So she already had a love for British music. Both girls were also really into an emerging band in the late 70s from America called the B-52s. Now, in this whole kind of music scene of the late 70s, early 80s, both Melissa and Tracy used to say to themselves, wouldn't it be fun to be in a band someday? As many sisters often do. I'm sure my sisters and I have said it on numerous times as well. But that didn't actually happen, at least not initially. In her early 20s, Tracy, the older of the two sisters, decided to strike out on her own and traveled across Europe with her boyfriend. Now, while she was traveling, she fell in love with London. And she soon decided to sell everything she owned and move there. She was so in love with London that she wrote a song called Just a City about her love for London. We're going to talk about that song in a little bit. 
Now, Tracy's boyfriend at the time was in a band, and that band recorded a demo. Tracy's song, Just a City, actually ended up on the B-side of that demo tape. Tracy's friend, Mike Jones, who lived down the street from her in London, used his equipment to record it with Tracy on vocals. Now, the boyfriend shopped this demo out to a bunch of record labels, as you know, as one does. And somebody at Food Records listened to it, and they weren't too hot on the A-side with Tracy's boyfriend. But they really did like the B-side and what they heard of Tracy. Tracy and the boyfriend soon broke up, and Food Records offered Tracy a recording contract. So Tracy sent word to Melissa in California and said, hey, sis, come to London. We're going to make this happen. We're going to start a band. So Melissa joined Tracy in London, and interestingly enough, they both ended up singing backup vocals on Bill Drummond's 1986 folk album, The Man. Now, Polly, I know you know who Bill Drummond is. He's half of the musical genius behind KLF. Uh, yeah, that he is, and a uh, huge fan, and I somewhat have a recollection of him doing a solo album, and I'm really unsure whether I'd listened to it or listened to it and forgot about it. As you know, I have a bit of a visceral reaction when we're talking about folk, so I probably didn't get quite into it, even if I had listened to it. But yeah, top-notch guy. Uh, mysterious, uh, elusive, great band. Check out KLF. Well, so maybe this will spark your recollection a little bit if you've heard it or not, Polly. This is a song called I'm the King of Joy from Bill Drummond's solo album. Uh-huh. You can burn the bridge, flood the fort, stone the palace and block the the faith of a child Have you ever had the song Born to be wild He's the king of joy Oh, the king of joy I did a lot of loving But then I got caught The doctor said, boy You've got to stop I said, no, I've got to carry on He said, fire and take me So very interesting, very different than his electronic work with KLF and other bands. I know, Polly, you've already probably tuned out just at the mention of folk music there, but. Yeah, but you could actually say that's that's uh, it's being kind of uh, gr- gracious or maybe the opposite of gracious, uh, saying that that particular song is folk. It's folk-esque, but it's still a bit too up-tempo and a bit uh, you know multi-instrumental to be straight up folk, so. Okay. It does have a couple of redeeming qualities. So you'll give it a pass is what you're saying? No. Oh, okay. Well, one of the redeeming qualities I would argue is actually the backup singers. So Melissa and Tracy are actually credited on the album sleeve as voice of the beehive harmonies. Now, there's an urban legend, and I think the girls might have actually started this themselves, to be honest, but there's an urban legend that they took their name from a Betty Davis film, but there's no such film. And another urban legend I've heard is that they took their name from the like wacky beehive hairdos that like the B-52s used to do. Hmm. 
But the truth is actually a lot less interesting. So the name Melissa means bee or honeybee in Greek. And that's actually where they took their name from. The, vo the voice of the beehive, Melissa meaning bee. Still kind of neat and definitely a unique name. So the voice of the beehive was signed to Food Records. And this was just like a, a one-off single deal. This was not like a full record contract. Food Records brought on Mark Bedford and Woody Woodgate to be the rhythm section. Now, Madness had just broken up in 86. Oh, uh, yeah. So Mark and Woody were, you know, looking for the next gig. And along comes this offer from Food Records. So Tracy and Melissa, along with Mike Jones, the guy down the street who recorded the demo, Betters and Woody, went into the studio to record Just a City as a one-off single. Now let's listen to the single version of Just a City. different than the version that eventually made it onto an album but as we mentioned now this was the song that tracy wrote because she just fell in love with the city of london as an american living abroad yeah well if you do listen to the album version um it's interesting to note that we're talking about 1987 uh so of course this follows you know the bangles and so the, you know the, you'll find that there's similarities in sound maybe through their whole repertoire but you know, that's that's not being particularly fair to them. But um, if you think of what it predates, bands like Belly and Liz Fair, who would be trailing by three, four or five years or something like that with a lot of their releases. I find those similarities much, much more interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they um, you know, they were kind of uh, it would seem in, in 1987. Uh, a little bit stuck between uh, the pop and um, what was really uh, successful in the 1980s. And uh, they were a little bit forward leaning, I would think, and trying to develop new sounds. And eventually those sounds would be flushed out by many bands. So, so good on them. They weren't relying on uh, going by formula. You know, you mentioned similarities with Belly and Tanya Donnelly. And boy, you know, I... I didn't catch that, but yeah, I definitely think there are some vocal similarities there. You know, another influence that Voice of the Beehive has cited in creating not just this single, but a lot of their sound was Phil Spector's Wall of Sound and that they were going for that kind of a retro throwback. So this was released as a single by Food Records. And as I mentioned, it was a one-off. One month later on the strength of this single, London Records offered the band a record deal. 
But Betters was a little bit tied up. He was starting to form Butterfield 8 with Terry Edwards. So he decided to take his leave. So he was with the band for that first single, but he was not with the band by the time that they had joined London Records. And so... In 1988, they do have a London Records release. It's Let It Be. Now, it was recorded at Puck Studios in Denmark. By this point, the band was a little bit more solidified. Of course, we have Tracy and Melissa. Uh, Tracy doing vocals and guitar. Melissa doing vocals. Mike Jones on guitar, vocals, keyboards, and programming. And, of course, we have Woody, drums and percussion, triggers, and keyboard programming as well. Martin Brett, he came in on bass and piano. And Tracy is quoted as saying that she felt that Martin challenged Woody and made him a better drummer. So, interesting note there. For sure. Woody, as we know from our episode way back when in, what, 2021 about Woody, he always has had a much more varied background than just ska music. And so I think for him, this may have been a better fit for his personal leanings, his personal taste. You know what I mean? Yes, it's it's possible that he was just uh, interested in doing something a little bit different. But as we all know, he's also a fan of kind of heavier music too. True. Uh, which he only had marginally uh, fulfilled at one point in his career. In terms of his drumming ability, he's very adaptable to many different kinds of sounds. And the singles on the album, uh, well, it would end up carrying a re-recording of Just the City. There'd be another song, I Say Nothing, that ended up going to number 11 on the U.S. modern rock charts. Let's take a listen. I'd say this is a pretty strong song for them. Uh, lyrically, at least, you know, it's got a lot of cheekiness going on in there that you didn't really see um, in a lot of the mainstream pop. You know, they always played it safe. But uh, this, uh, you know, speaks a little bit from their perspective of a bit of a bad girl. So in that respect, I think they're making an attempt potentially to be a little bit edgy, but it doesn't detract from anything. You know, they're, it's uh, pretty smart lyrically. The next single after that was something called I Walk the Earth, which a lot of our fans will know. And then this one, this is another one of their better known songs called Don't Call Me Baby. Don't call me baby. She is waiting 
Polly, I was thinking of this song actually yesterday. I don't know if you caught the tail end of my Instagram drama. I had some guy out of the blue messaging me on Instagram, baby this and baby that, and oh, I'm looking for a new sugar baby, and baby, are you interested? And I, <laughs> I literally, I wrote him back and I said, okay, first of all, stop calling me baby. It's disrespectful. I'm sorry. I am a middle-aged married college professor. I have no interest in being anybody's sugar baby. Good luck with that. But I was thinking of that. And this was this song was in my head as I was responding to him. Don't call me baby. So according to Tracy Brin, I remembered a movie where Anne Margaret says, Don't call me baby to Elvis Presley. I had liked the line so much, I'd written it down in my journal. So the lyrics of this song were actually written by Tracy with Mike Jones. And it's about Tracy's ex-boyfriend in America. Now, he used to borrow Tracy's car and he'd say he was out running errands. But she later found out he was using the car to take another woman out. And that comes out in the lyrics of this song. Yes, it's definitely a hooky song. I think in the chorus, it allows them to shine a little bit, at least in terms of their harmonies, which you might say sort of their signature move. They do a very good job harmonizing with each other, Melissa and Tracy do. And honestly, that's a complaint that I have about many bands that have two female lead vocalists. Maybe not recording artists, but local bands that I've heard where you'll have two female vocalists that don't harmonize with each other. They're actually just singing the same part. Mm -hmm. And it starts to sound very boring after a while. It starts to get very stale. So Melissa and Tracy did a really good job uh, harmonizing with each other. And then there was one last single after this one, Polly, called Man in the Moon. Now, bear in mind, um, bear in mind, uh, this was for all intents and purposes, you might say like a UK album uh, recorded there, UK record label, although it was released in the United States. But back in the UK, the album reached number 13 on the album's charts and in its debut week. So altogether, pretty auspicious beginning. It peaked at number 53 in Australia on the ARIA albums chart and at number 40 in New Zealand. Back in the U.S., it received a lot of airplay on college radio stations, especially KROQ in Los Angeles. Yeah, the legendary K-Rock. That's where a lot of big alternative bands started getting a lot of airplay. Kind of surprised, actually, that they didn't get more airplay in the U.S. after K-Rock picked them up. Yeah, I would be, too. Yeah. Hmm. It seems, you know, they did, like we said, you know, I intimated a little bit that they had a sound not dissimilar from Bangles, you know, not to pan on them. It was different, but um, it certainly was of the time, and you would think that it would have done a little bit better. Yeah. So... The next album they released was in 1991 called Honey Lingers, which is a little bit of a play on words, cunnilingus. Is that why you let me take this one? Because you wanted me to say cunnilingus? Now, does it say that somewhere? Yes. Because, really? Yes. Okay, fine. Yes. I did not make that up. That actually came from a pretty reliable source. All right. They are cunning linguists. Anyway. This is the first album of theirs that I heard, not in its entirety, but I heard a lot of songs out of it. The big single off of this one was Monsters and Angels. 
So this was the voice of the beehive's biggest U.S. hit, peaking at number 74 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number eight on the U.S. Modern Rock Charts. Let's play that one. single which i am not going to play because it will get stuck in your head and never let go their cover of the partridge family song i think i love you which is clever it did go to number 12 in australia and 25 in the uk but didn't really do anything here in the u.s and finally their third single perfect place which peaked in australia at number 31 and 37 in the uk but again not much chart activity here in the U.S. This is perfect place. Cause not much is sacred. There's not really much to do here anymore. I don't feel like you said. I walk the earth, my darling, but I never feel at home. in general was critically acclaimed but it didn't really sell as well as let it be the album was certified silver in the uk for shipments of sixty thousand units and it peaked at number 68 on the australian aria charts and number 17 on the uk albums chart but again didn't really chart in the u.s However, it was still getting a lot of airplay, not just on K-Rock, but on a lot of college radio stations. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, up-and-coming bands, that's how they were getting exposure. If you wanted something that was alternative, that was not the mainstream, you turned into the college radio stations. So then they released a greatest hits album in Canada only. I'm not sure why they made that decision because they really hadn't had any chart activity in Canada up until that point, but it was called a portrait. And that was again in 1991. And that was their greatest hits album. 
And shortly after that release in Canada in 1991, the band more or less began to fragment. Uh, the band members were frustrated with London Records' seeming inability to market their music. Woody, as we know, would end up returning to madness in 1992. Martin Brett, as it turned out, had family commitments. Mike Jones wanted to go in a different direction musically, so the band sought to be released from their London Records contract. Despite this, they managed to contribute a version of the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter to a 1993 EMI collection of covers of the song. They collaborated with Jimmy Somerville of Bronski Beat. If I don't get some shelter, oh yeah, I'm gonna fade away. interesting take on that song had you heard this one before polly i i i have yeah i do actually uh i can't quite remember if this uh appears on the uh jimmy somerville and bronski beat um sort of greatest hits thing but uh at least at some point i made it uh a point to go out and look up everything jimmy somerville i'm a huge fan okay yeah and i think uh unfortunately for voice of the beehive Jimmy Somerville really, really outshines them on this. You know, he does much better, as is his trademark falsetto, at re, you know, sort of imagining or paying homage to uh, the Mary Clayton backup vocals on Gimme Shelter of the Stones version. So I just can't say enough great things about Jimmy Somerville in this. And it was great that he got to do a voice of the Beehive. You know, no shame on them. They did really, really well. And this is probably, I think, their best offering of all. I, I agree with you. I think Jimmy Somerville really kind of takes center stage, I mean, as he tends to do. There was another cover that Tracy and Melissa had done a few years prior to this, and it doesn't get a lot of mention. It was credited to Tracy and Melissa Beehive, not Voice of the Beehive. And this was in, I think, 88. They did a very interesting cover of the Johnny Cash song, Five Feet High and Rising. So if it's okay with you, Polly, I want to play a little snippet of this one, too. Go right ahead. How high's the water, Mama? Well, it's two feet high and rising. How high's the water, Papa? The road in a homemade boat The only thing we've got left to float It's already over the weed and oats It's two feet high and rising How high's the water, Mama? Well, it's three feet high and rising How high's the water, Papa?
So completely different sound. This is definitely a very country vibe to it. I mean, as was the original. So they're definitely exploring some different musical avenues here. You know, one of the things that we had mentioned earlier is one of their very early influences was the B-52s. And uh, again, speaking of the idea of two female leads doing harmony, Cindy and Kate from the B-52s and Melissa and Tracy here, you can really hear that B-52s influence. All right. So coming on the heels of that, you mentioned the 1993 recording with Jimmy Somerville. By 95, as you said, the band, I all went their separate ways. And Tracy and Melissa moved back to California. While they were there, they signed to East West Records. They finally did get out of their London Records contract. While at East West Records, the girls joined forces with keyboard player Peter Vettis, who had previously produced Annie Lennox's solo album, Diva. That was what, 92? Diva? I think it was uh, 92. You got me. You got me. I think it was about 92 or so. So he'd already made a big name for himself as a producer at that point. Tracy, Melissa, and Peter, as a trio, worked on a new album and a new sound. There was also some collaboration here with Andy Partridge of XTC, who shares a writing credit on the song Blue in Paradise. Now, Tracy described working with Andy as the best experience of her life. So the album Sex and Misery was released in the UK, but there was not much fanfare. And Discovery Records actually released the album in the US. They picked it up off of East West. So the singles of this album, first, they released the single Angel Come Down in the UK. And that was, I think, done by the label. They wanted to gauge interest to see if people were still interested in Voice of the Beehive. However, they quickly pulled it. Then they released the single Scary Kisses. And this was a modest hit in the U.S., reaching number 77 on the Billboard Hot 100. This is Scary Kisses. <laughs> so scary kisses um a bit of a departure for them like you said they were working on a new sound and i really felt for my taste that a faster tempo works a great deal better for them if you're doing slower songs 
There's no end to the amount of harmonies you can fit in there. Faster tempo, much harder to do. Um, you can certainly do it. You could do harmonies anywhere and for any reason you want. But on an up-tempo song, a lot less room for it. And, and I feel that this is them also kind of breaking away from the pack. When we talked about you know, the similarities maybe in some of their sound to other artists, uh, here, I really don't, nothing jumps to mind. Okay. So I really think this is them developing their own voice, as it were. There's no pun there, people. So it's definitely got kind of a Madchester vibe or like the farm, doesn't it? Very up-tempo. I think they really are striking out and finding their own sound. So after this, the label decided to release another UK-only single called Heavenly and then another US single called So Hard. I'm not really sure what the strategy was here, why we're releasing some singles in the U.S., some in the U.K. Keep in mind that this is 96. This is like the very, very earliest days of the Internet. That was still kind of a, a fractured market. You know, I think now with social media and the Internet and everything, I think there's much more potential for people to go international You know, when they're performers because it reaches the overseas so quickly. But in 96, that still wasn't really happening. So I kind of question why they decided to do it this way. And so it would seem after the relative failure of Sex and Misery, that there would be no more Voice of the Beehive offerings in earnest. Uh, and so more or less, the band was truly broken up at that point. Uh, as we know, Martin Brett, had moved on. By this point, he had formed the Brett Dempsey Music Productions. Mike Jones lives in Norwich, where he still plays guitar. Of course, we know Woody and Betters were back with Madness and continue to be to this day, thankfully. But the two sisters, Tracy, well, she went home and became a teacher in California. Melissa began the Made in Heaven Clothing Company. So that's kind of where it stood until fairly recently. In September 2022, the record label wanted to re-release a 35th anniversary edition of Let It Be, which, as I mentioned, has a bunch of, you know, B-sides, demo tracks, that kind of stuff. And Voice of the Beehive went back into the studio to record a new single as part of this re-release, and that was Cartoon City. This was released in September of last year, 2022. Let's give a listen.
So that was really exciting to finally have something new from the voice of the beehive after all these years. And they definitely got back to their their roots. You know, they think they got back to their original sound. Did you get a chance to listen to this one, Polly? Uh, yeah, I did. And uh, yeah, by merit of it being so new, uh, I was unfamiliar with it altogether. And yeah, you know, I it did, did not do a great deal for me. It seemed like fairly rudimentary songwriting. Okay, that's fair. You know, Polly, you you really, you said something earlier that really struck me that I guess I really hadn't pondered. And that is that this really hit right before the big kind of Lilith Fair girl power pop that we kind of started to see around the early 90s. So maybe they were a little ahead of their time. Maybe if they'd been a little bit later, they would have been a little bit bigger. And, you know, I'd be hard pressed to say, you know, whether they they actually had any influence on any of the the bands that you mentioned, you know, like Belly or um, Liz Fair, you know, Breeders, any of that kind of stuff. I would imagine that they would, but, you know, who can say? Who can say whether or not they were actually an influence or not? I do think that it's cool as a Madness fan because I think it really showcases Woody's versatility that, you know, he really can fit into a variety of different genres and a variety of different sounds. And it is really kind of light, fun power pop. You know, it's enjoyable to listen to. What are your thoughts? Well, let me see. Because I don't want to be, I don't feel obligated to necessarily be too diplomatic about it. This was never, okay. this was never really going to be uh, my cup of tea, you know? Uh, so here we have two very talented young women that are, you know, fans of pop music, I think first and foremost. And I think they're living out their you know, teenage dreams kind of, and they are writing music that to me seems like eternally for teenage girls. And there's, I don't know, there's just no shame in that. One other thing that I noticed, I'm sorry. I'm done. If you look at the tour schedule, Voice of the Beehive toured the U.S. a lot more than Madness ever did. They had several American tours. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting just because, you know, Woody, Woody finally did get to tour and see the U.S., but you know, the rest of the guys didn't. And I guess that kind of leads me back to, come on, boys, we are waiting for our promised American tour. Am I, am I, am I being salty? <laughs> am I, am I beating on a dead horse there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And anything else about Voice of the Beehive? Nope, we're good. Okay. So we're working on another episode for you in two weeks, but today I'd like to leave with a song that is important to me this is actually polly the first song i ever heard by the voice of the beehive i was working in uh in a mall as assistant manager of a very trendy clothing store and and we had one of those piped in music services you know that's specifically chosen for our store's demographic and this song was on one of the tapes that we used to play in the store and that is adonis blue and I had no idea who they were. I didn't know anything about them. I certainly didn't know that there was a connection to madness. But I really fell in love with this song. 
So I'd like to share it with you and with our listeners. So we're going to end with Adonis Blue by Voice of the Beehive. And on that note, it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness.